In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have what might be our most depressing episode so far. Ain't that awesome, Michael? Yeah, I think that's a new milestone. That's that's good. But to yeah, be fair, I'm... the news has just been depressing. We didn't do this. <laughs> it was yeah, done to we... us. <laughs> but yeah, we are going to be talking about some topics that are super depressing. We're going to talk about the situation on the border with regard to immigration. We're going to talk about... Uh, mass shootings in the United States, and then we're going to finish our episode by talking about hate crimes. So just a bundle of just joy today. dandy, absolutely. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, if you I like mean, to be get... terribly, terribly depressed and you feel like supporting the show, you can go to our Patreon <laughs> <laughs> at uh, patreon.com slash theperspectrum. Throw us a couple yeah. bucks if you want to uh, continue to hear this content and get some extra bonus content, which... We can't promise is less depressing, but we hope is less depressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, because we're going to be talking about a lot of really depressing stuff, Michael, let's let's try to start everything off on a high note. So let's hear the COVID numbers. Oh, well, that's not awesome. <laughs> well, it's a high note because COVID numbers are high. Yeah. They're, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what you mean. Unfortunately, the lot, all the numbers in today's show are going to be pretty high. Um so, so far worldwide, we've had 125.2 million cases, which is up from 121.6 million cases last week, which is a 3% increase in total cases, which is actually the largest increase in cases that we've seen in the last few weeks. So far, 2.75 million people have died in the world from COVID, which is up from 2.69 million people last week. So that's about 60,000 more deaths uh, over the previous week, which is about the same that we've seen. Um, so far, 6.2 doses of the vaccine have been administered for every 100 people worldwide, and that's up from 5.1 doses last week. Um, so definitely a, a pretty big improvement there, like a 20% improvement. In the U.S., 30.7 million cases um, is the new milestone that we've hit this week, which is up from 30.3 million last week. So that's a 1.3% increase or about 400,000 new cases, which is pretty much the exact same uh, level of like case increase that we saw the prior week. Um, test positivity rates are continuing to go down. Uh, this week, they're at 4.3%, which is down from 5% at this time last week. Um, that being said, we have reached 558,000 deaths in the U.S., which is up from 550,000 deaths last week. So that's about 1,100 new deaths per day, which is basically the same elevated level that we've seen on a daily basis um, that we saw the prior week. So again, that's like nearly 420,000 deaths per year if you annualize that number. Um, now, in the U.S., we have administered one dose of the vaccine to about 25% of the population. I should say at least one dose to about 25% of the population, which is up from 22% of the population 
um, that had gotten one dose last week. Now, as a reminder, that's only a 3% increase, which is less than the, the week before, which had a 4% increase. Um, and at this point, 14% of the U.S. is fully vaccinated, which is up from 12% last week. So that's also uh, a, a, a slower increase in the fully vaccinated population. When I first saw the the slowdown in the like the population that received one dose, I kind of expected that you know, that was because we were investing in a second dose. But, um, you know, last week we had four, a 4% increase in fully vaccinated people. And then this week it's only a 2% increase in fully vaccinated people. So this is a terrible time to be slowing down on that. And I'm hoping that this is just a temporary thing. Um, yeah, for sure. So basically we're seeing things plateau at a pretty high level in the U S for cases and deaths, and we're seeing vaccines slow down a bit. So really not a great week in the U.S. for COVID. Yeah. And one of the things that I do think is important for us to note about COVID is despite the fact that things are getting a little bit better than they were before, it is still important to note how we got here. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of how we got here was incompetent leadership, uh, not taking the pandemic seriously, you know, in some cases straight up lying about how serious the pandemic is going to be, mm-hmm. prioritizing uh, the economy over people's lives. Yeah. And an important note that was not a huge impact on COVID was immigration. Yeah. As many people have been trying to argue. And we want to spend some time talking about immigration today for several reasons. First Mm -hmm. off, we want to make sure that we analyze the Biden administration's changes in immigration policies and talk about what is going on at the border, but also to point out the fact that you can't believe the scapegoating that happens. Yeah. All right. One of the big things that is happening right now is there are a lot of Republicans in leadership that are pointing at immigrants as the primary source of COVID. And the thing is, scapegoating immigrants is just Republicanism 101. Yeah, that's old right? hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you're having economic hardships, blame the yeah. immigrants. Yeah, it's not know? the fact that the Republicans don't have any economic policies that could possibly help you or anything like yeah. that, or that they block legislation that might help you. No, 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 it's the immigrants. Yeah, you're paid less than a living wage, blame the immigrants. Mm-hmm. I mean... And COVID-19 explodes in the state because we lifted COVID restrictions. No, no, no. It's not because of that. It's because of the immigrants, mm-hmm. uh, which is a which was this disgusting comment that was made by uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. And that's just something that is becoming all too prevalent. And the fear mongering is really taking like it, it's 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 really increasing. I mean, just yeah. recently. Uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy from California, basically, he, he said that he was talking to to border agents and that the people, and he said that the people that were coming over the border right now were on the terrorist watch list. Like <sighs> that there were, there were people from the Middle East that were on the terrorist watch list that were coming, that were using the Southern border in order to come over to our country, which I mean, First off, that's just the stupidest infiltration plan ever. Like, 
Your plan yeah. is to try to get through borders and customs? Yeah. Like, <laughs> let's enter the place that is the most under a microscope of anywhere in the country for, get, like, for entering. Yeah. 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 We plan on doing terrorism. So let's, I mean, the people that, the people that committed the acts on 9-11, most of them were people that were on visas. Mm-hmm. Right? They weren't just, they weren't undocumented immigrants. Yeah. So, and another important thing to note is that he said this without evidence, and there was actually a response from um, the chair of the Subcommittee on Intelligence and Special Operations, uh, and also a border state member. Uh, he's a member of Congress in Arizona, um, Representative uh, Ruben uh, Gallego. And he basically said, it's weird that I haven't heard anything about this. Uh, I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to have a briefing on this because it seems like this is something I should have been briefed on if this was true, which of course it's not fucking true. He just made it up because he's trying yeah. to fear monger about immigrants and distract, uh, and distract people from the fact that Republicans voted against the COVID-19 bill. They have absolutely no solutions whatsoever, mm-hmm. uh, for any of our economic hardships and they are actively working against the American people. But if they can get you to hate immigrants, if they can get you to blame immigrants, then you might keep voting for them. Yeah. And that's the strategy. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and blame immigrants and blame Democrats for the immigrants, which is yeah. the other side of the strategy, is yeah. is like the fact that at, at like right now, not only not only Republican uh, media and and representatives, but also um, also like plenty of other outlets are pushing a very heavy like like there is a crisis at the southwestern border um caused by Biden's um like policies and like it seems to be just accepted across the board that that is true mostly yeah. based on like timing coincidence and when you take a closer look that's a that's a way more dubious claim so like yeah. like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was at the southern border, and he claimed that there was a crisis there created by the president's policies in his administration. Um, and and basically, the claim is that Biden is is signaling too much to potential migrants that his policies are friendly to them, and so as a result, he's encouraging them to show up to the U.S. in record numbers. So basically, the, the 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 line they're pushing is Biden's policy attitude on immigration is driving a crisis in immigration volume at the southern border, which looks like it's probably not true. Yeah, and one of the things that we've actually talked about on this pod before is the fact that interestingly enough, strengthening border security ends up having sort of an opposite effect. Mm-hmm. So it's it doesn't necessarily reduce the number of people that cross the border illegally, Mm -hmm. but it does increase the number of people that stay here when they come here illegally. Sure. So basically if, if somebody is going across the border in order to, in order to um, work and then potentially come back to the, uh, to, to Mexico, um, if border security is strengthened, then they have less incentive to leave. Yeah, so it's more risky what you're actually leave. doing, yeah. So what you're, yeah, it 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 disincentivizes circular migration. Yeah. So what you're actually doing is you're not necessarily reducing the number of people that cross, but you are increasing the number of undocumented people that are in the country. Mm-hmm. So that's why that's one of the biggest reasons why a wall 
is just pure theater. Yeah. You know, strengthening border security is just pure theater. And this idea that uh, Biden wants open borders, again, it's it's just pure theater. It's mm -hmm. just not true. Yeah. So we wanted to quickly test this claim about whether Joe Biden's like signaling of friendliness towards immigration actually coincides with a significant uh, increase in volume. And luckily, we had the aid of the Washington Post, which did a recent analysis on this particular claim. Now, one thing I want to point out, which, which I kind of mentioned earlier, we're seeing this claim from all over the place. It's in the Atlantic, the New York Times, Washington Post. Everybody is claiming that because Biden um, signaled, you know, f more friendliness towards immigration than Trump, that that is driving this increase. And it seems like everybody is just accepting that without really looking. Um, and so it's worth actually taking a look. So the Washington Post analyzed uh, Customs and Border Control data on interactions, um, basically like uh, basically apprehensions of people crossing the border from 2012 until now. And the basic conclusion was they found no significant surge that is attributable to Biden's administration policies or his like entrance into, uh, or his like, you know, becoming the president of the United States and therefore like doing a soft signaling of more receptiveness. So basically what they found is that this pattern is actually a predictable seasonal pattern of uh, attempted undocumented immigration um, combined with the fact that there was a significant decline in um, in attempts to cross the border during 2020 due to the coronavirus. So basically what they found is that the pandemic delayed migration rather than stopping it. And so we're starting to see some of that surge now. So if you actually look at like the graph over time, you see that in the last months of 2020, so during the Trump administration, uh, encounters at the border were actually like elevated above previous years. Um, but the trend line after Biden takes office is very much in line with past years, 2019, 2018, and before. Um, now, the, the reason that is, is because Biden takes office in January and weather starts to warm up in February, March, April, and so on. And so every year you see uh, after you see a big increase from January to February and then increases from February to March and March to April and so on until it gets hot during the summer, at which time it, at which point it's dangerous and deadly um, to cross, uh, you know, some of the some of the deserts down there. And so it's like uh, encounters drop off. Um, and so Customs and Border Patrol has recorded a 28% increase uh, in migrants apprehended from January to February 2021. So that's from 78,000 in January to 100,000 in February. Um, in 2019, and I'm skipping over 2020 because the pandemic's there, and so that kind of threw off all trends. Um, in 2019, total apprehensions over that same period incre increased 31%. So actually a bigger increase than we're seeing this year. In 2018, they saw a little bit later of a seasonal change. So the big increase came from March to April, but they saw a 25% increase then. And they, they keep seeing this every year. And so what you see is the pattern of increased volume occurred before Biden was president. 
And the January to February increase is just a seasonal increase, which we see every year because climate conditions are more hospitable to uh, crossing the border. And so like, there's actually no real evidence that Biden's receptiveness to immigration or policies have driven an increase. Interesting. Yeah. So, so the thing is, like, there actually is more volume. Like, we should definitely acknowledge that. There are more people coming across the border than have come across in the last 20 years, but, like, you know, as a function of rate. So, like, more people per week. But that's a very different crisis than Biden is signaling people to come to the U.S. more than previous administrations. Hmm. Interesting. So basically, uh, there is no unique explosion of immigration. Um, and even if there was, that would not be something that you could look at and claim to basically be, uh, like be what's spreading COVID. I mean, first off, it's yeah, important sure. to note that the countries that these immigrants are coming from, I mean, they actually have a lower COVID case per capita than the United States. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's those countries that should be trying to keep us out. If, yeah. If like we're talking about COVID. Yeah. Um, so one thing that's really important to note in this entire discussion is let's try to take an intellectually honest look at what Biden is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Because I've been seeing people on the right make the argument that he's completely opening up the borders, which is not true. I've even been seeing some people on the right and some people on the left basically saying that he's reinstated Trump's family separation policies, (laughs) which it's funny that there are people on the right that are simultaneously saying that he's too hawkish on immigration and he's for open borders at the same time. Um, But let's talk about what's actually happening. And I think it's important to do this in a way where we try to put partisan hackery aside yeah because these these are people all right these are people whose lives are being affected by these policies it doesn't matter if the person who's administering the policy has a d next to their name or there are next to their name if it's the wrong policy and it's causing harm Mm -hmm. we have to talk about it yeah all right so i don't want to hear shit from democrats or republicans about like, oh, you're just, you know, you're just doing this because you love, you're just talking about this because you hate Trump or you love Biden or you hate Biden or whatever. I don't care about any of that yeah. stuff. If you think any of that's on this show, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we do hate Trump. I mean, any that, love for but... <laughs> Biden's on this show. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the big change that actually has happened. So under the Trump administration... Uh, specifically in response to the COVID pandemic. Borders got pretty much completely shut down, which means that adults were not allowed to come in to try to seek asylum. Uh, Kids unaccompanied by adults were not allowed to come in to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. And kids with parents were not allowed to come across to to try to seek asylum. So this created, this creates border towns. So uh, one one example, one major example is Tijuana, uh, where there are basically thousands of immigrants who are in tents 
right outside the border uh, between Mexico and, and California. So Biden comes in and he institutes a policy that has a sort of indirect effect at partially reinstating child separation. So let mm. me explain what I mean by that. So the way child separation worked under the Trump administration was basically as a disincentive for people to come. Like yeah. they were, they even, they even said that they admitted that Jeff Sessions admitted that the reason why they had that is because they wanted people to think twice before coming into the country, uh, illegally. They said that that was, that was their policy. And they, they would separate children from their parents and they would put them in detention facilities, you know, which is where we get all those picture of kids in cages. So the Biden administration is also putting kids in cages, but it's a different sort of situation, a different sort of process. Mm -hmm. So here's what the Biden administration changed. They're still, they still have it so that adults and families cannot seek asylum, or at least they can't be processed mm. for asylum claims at this time. And again, the, the argument is because of COVID. However, they did make it so that unaccompanied kids could potentially seek asylum. So if an unaccompanied child attempts to, you know, go at a, go to an entry point, they can potentially claim asylum. Hmm. And while they're claiming asylum, a lot of them are put into many of these facilities that they were put into under the Biden administration or hmm. under the uh, Trump administration um, when they were being being incarcerated and separated from their parents. Now, what so, do I now? So the intention is to try to get unaccompanied minors to be able to actually seek asylum and stay in the U.S. Yeah. But here's what's happening. And this, this is the truly heartbreaking part of it. And I, like, this, this should piss you off. This should tug at your humanity. If you don't feel something as we talk about this, there's something wrong with you. What this has led a lot of families to do mm. is to basically separate themselves from their kids mm -hmm. so that their kids can seek asylum. So if a family comes to Tijuana, sometimes they, they will actually send their kids over unaccompanied to claim asylum. Mm. Sometimes they'll even have um, coyotes basically take them to, you know, take them to border patrol and basically say, Hey, this is an unaccompanied minor. You know, we don't know where his family is, so you need to take him. And the reason why they're doing that is so that these kids don't have to like, don't have to live in these camps mm -hmm. because the, 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 the facilities that they're putting kids in, you know, again, the ones that in many cases they're being put in cages, that is preferable in, in the, the eyes of these parents. So they're making the tough decision of basically just separating themselves from their kids. And look, Trump's policy was far more despicable, mm -hmm. far more sociopathic. But this policy is having the unintended consequence of separating kids from their parents. Yeah, same so, effect. So you, might, so you might argue that Joe Biden didn't cause this. But his administration is certainly responsible for yeah, it. Yeah, they're certainly continuing it.
And that's for sure. Like, maybe they have good intentions. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, kids are being separated from their from their parents. And they're being put in detention facilities. And it's wrong. It's It's not okay. And I understand the need to you know, contain COVID. I understand the need to, to monitor COVID, mm-hmm. but, and, and I, I, I don't know what the solution is, Yeah, but it can't be this. Yeah. We're, we, we have to be better than this. I mean, the Trump administration was not better than this. They were a million times worse than this, but God damn it. We have to be better than this. And, and, and it just, it pisses me off. That while all of this is happening, while there are people that are that are fleeing extreme poverty, people that are free, fleeing government corruption, gang violence, gun violence, war, that, that politicians are sitting in their ivory tower, at best are instituting policies that might be well-intentioned but end up like having the opposite effect, and at worst... Trying to blame all of these countries' problems on a bunch of people that just want a better life. It's it's unthinkable, it's despicable, it's sociopathic, and we have to be better than this. There has to be a solution. I don't know what that solution is, but there has to be one. Yeah. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So, Nathan... Why do we do tips for good every week? Well, Michael, we do tips for good every week because you make me feel like I'm living a teenage dream. Mm. The way you turn me on, I can't sleep. Let's run away and don't ever look back. Don't, don't ever look back. Oh my God. <laughs> and also to make the world a better place. Yes, I that hope. Too. That too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. We might have to take this offline. <laughs> so, Michael, what's our tip for good this week? Okay. So, our tip for good this week is to, uh, well, in short, eat your leftovers. Mm. <laughs> Specifically, yes. um, we want to encourage our audience to think about strategies that you can use to reduce how much food you throw away. Um, So one study from uh, Penn State found that U.S. households waste about a third of the food that they purchase each year, which is insane. Literally, take your food budget and then then just throw away a third of it. Yeah. Um, So they found that U.S. households waste on average 31.9% of the food, which leads to total cost of food thrown away, uh, estimated $240 billion, or about 1800 bucks per household, which is yeah. absolutely nuts. Like, there are people literally starving, and yet an average household wastes $2,000 of food a year. Yeah. And you look, know. you know, a freshly cooked meal is great. Yeah. But you know what's you know what's also really nice? Not having to cook. Yeah. Because you already did. Exactly. You know? Like you, you, I'm at the end of a day. You know, I've been teaching all day. And and I'm thinking, hey, there's a uh there's a um there's some chili that we made yesterday in the fridge 
All you have to do is just mm. teed it up and boom, you got your dinner. Bam. I mean, you know, might not be uh might not be completely fresh, but I mean, God chili damn, is better chili than is still day. good. <laughs> I mean, ch- yeah, I, yeah, to be fair. Yeah. Chili chili is one of those foods that's super good. Yeah. Like heated up again. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why whenever we make chili, we just like make a ton of it. Yeah. And then absolutely. just use that use that as our food for like the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. Not wasting food not only like saves you money and you know, can help other people get food. Um, but also like it prevents a lot of greenhouse gases from throwing mm. that food away. Um, yeah. so yeah, there are tons of strategies like just eating w- the leftovers in your fridge or, yeah. you know, if you've got leftovers that you don't think you're going to eat for a while, put them in the freezer yeah. or make a plan to eat, you know, leftovers in a timely manner or just like purge the food from your refrigerator periodically and eat as yeah. much of it uh, as you can that is uh you know uh yeah. still in date and also i mean be conscientious about what you cook i mean we were just talking yeah. about how chili is really good leftover mm-hmm. some foods are really good leftover some foods aren't yeah you know start making more foods that are better eaten when you when you heat them up the next day yeah, again for sure. like chili i'm yeah. a huge fan of chili <laughs> <laughs> this is really a commercial for chili uh- <laughs> <laughs> the perspectrum sponsored by chili <laughs> exactly um we we've it that's it that's how it ends we've now been impacted by big chili big chili big big chili has taken over the perspectrum we're now going to be uh putting in subliminal messages and every now and then (laughs) big chili will give us a call and be like hey hey i don't like you talking about this stop talking about it and we'll be like okay just give us more leftover chili Um, so if you're, if you don't know how long food lasts in the fridge, you can use some websites. One is called stilltasty.com and it lets you know how long it is safe to eat, uh, the food that you cook after you have cooked it. So that's tips for good. Okay. So now we're going to transition to an even more somber topic. Um, than literally keeping children in cages. Um, mass shootings. So we've had two high-profile ones in the last week, and in total in the U.S., there have been seven shootings in the last week that have killed at least four people, which qualifies as mass shootings. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a story that we've heard before. Way too many times. And it's a story that's just going to keep being told. And I'm going to keep saying, like, like, we're just going to keep saying the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, I, I always don't know what to do when, when there's a mass shooting, Mm -hmm. because I, I mean, we've, we've talked about this on the pod before. In some ways, I am a little bit more of a civil libertarian when it comes to, when it comes to guns. But the thing is, I hate how the Republican response, even even if I nominally agree with some of what they say, that the Republican response is either a, oh a bunch of people don't uh, a bunch of people just died. Damn it! Don't take my guns away. I care about my guns. Yeah. Instead of you know, people just fucking got shot. Yeah. And like we need to warn the loss and think about what we can do. And then the other, the other reaction is always, now is not the time to talk about guns. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, that is always, always 
a strategy. Yep. Because the strategy goes, let's spend all of our time when people care about guns, when people are thinking about guns in the in the wake of a mass shooting, talking about how it's just, oh, it's it's bad for the victims. It's dishonoring the victims to make this political. Yeah. You know, to talk about guns. And then by the time we've, you know, sort of the shock has worn off and we've moved on, which it's terrible that that happens, but that's what happens. And you try to talk about guns. They're just like, well, but it's been so long since we've had a mass shooting. Why would we need to talk about guns? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's the perfect strategy. Yeah. In order to avoid having a conversation. Yeah. And so I, I don't want to do a segment in which I talk about, you know, my views about um, protecting the Second Amendment, where I talk about uh, my objections to certain pieces of gun control, because I think what we really need to do, what we really need to focus on is, number one, honoring the victims, and number two, talking about actual solutions. Yeah. All right? It can't just be do nothing. Yeah. It can't just be do nothing. Yeah, I think the Parkland survivors really served to change a lot of that initial reaction. Yeah. I think like them it, almost immediately standing up and saying, no, we have to have this conversation. Yeah. I think that was really effective. But to your point on like immediately the reaction is not about the loss of life, but about the potential loss of guns. Like literally on Monday after the shooting in Colorado, which we'll walk through, the National Rifle Association tweeted, they just tweeted the Second Amendment. They just tweeted, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Could you think of a more insensitive response? Like, could yeah. you think of something more callous and more, like, Oh, like self-aware of the fact that they don't give a crap about people being killed. I was, I was floored by that. And the fact of the matter is in the wake of mass shootings, you know what happens? An increase in gun sales. Yeah. Because everybody is terrified that they're going to be losing their guns. So they rush to go buy guns. And I'm not saying that that means that there are people at the NRA that are celebrating every time there's a mass shooting, but they sure as hell benefit from it. Mm -hmm. They sure as hell benefit from not caring. I'm not saying that they don't care. Like I, I don't, I'm not inside the heads of people at the NRA, but the fact of the matter is gun manufacturers heavily benefit from, from mass shootings. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that is a really sad and disgusting truth. In the United States, there's approximately 40,000 gun deaths per year. About 60% of that is suicide, and about 35% of that is homicide. Now, I think that is an important note to make, because when people see the, uh, the statistic about 40,000 gun deaths a year, yeah. usually people think, well, one person shooting another. In fact, most yeah. of the deaths are actually suicide. But it is important to note that that is still important. Yeah. Because the fact of the matter is suicidal ideation increases the risk of suicide if there is a gun in the house. Yes. 
that's just that's just a fact because it's simply a, gun, a more effective way to commit yeah, suicide it's a more effective way to commit suicide and if you have a gun in the house which you know i do mm-hmm. um then you are more likely that that gun is actually statistically more likely to be used on yourself than used on a potential yeah um intruder that's that's that is just that's just a statistical fact now that doesn't mean that it's bad to have a gun mm-hmm. you know i i obviously don't believe that but it does mean that on top of a conversation about homicides mm-hmm. there does need to be a conversation about mental health and I, yeah. I don't mean that the way that republicans often mean it where they say oh well it's not a gun problem it's a mental health problem so let's stigmatize disabled people in order to save our guns that's not what i'm talking about i'm yeah. talking about yeah. the fact that there is a suicide problem yeah and it is exacerbated by guns and that is a conversation that needs to be had and like that would just that's just another benefit from a universal health care system in the united states that does include mental health and it also emphasizes the important the importance of destigmatizing mental health treatment, mm-hmm. which is a whole other conversation. But it's it's something that should not be brushed to the side when we're talking about guns. Yeah, and I think I think suicide is actually a super important case because because of the relationship between suicide deaths and guns, which is basically that the exact one you laid out. You know, if you are, if you have a gun in the home, you're more likely to die from a suicide that you attempt. Um, yeah. Is, is, a, is a really important thing to note because it means, importantly, that we don't have to solve suicide in order to solve a lot of suicides. Yeah. So, so the thing is, like, in the U.S., we have a gun death problem. Not just a mass shooting problem, but a gun death problem. We've got six times as many firearm deaths per capita as Canada and 16 times as many in Germany. And there's a really strong correlation between gun deaths and rates of gun ownership, which is like, of course there is. The the, The more someone has access to a gun, if they're gonna try to kill somebody and the gun and a gun is the most effective way to do that, the more likely they are to succeed with the gun that they have on, on hand. And that's not just true um, among US states, that's true among other countries as well. It's a very high correlation. Now, in the US, we've got a bunch of guns. We've got 120.5 guns per 100 people. So that's 20.5 more guns than we have per 100 people. 31% of all U.S. households have guns, and 22% of American adults personally own one or more firearms. Yeah. And the fact is that states with tighter gun laws have fewer gun deaths. Gun laws, not all of them work the same. They are actually, there's a lot of disparation, just like there's a lot of disparate effectiveness, but some gun laws do work to prevent gun deaths. And when you have policies that limit gun access, states see suicides, successful suicides, go down. So, so like, the fact is that this is not a mystery. 
Yeah. And and we don't have to say no guns in order to solve this not mystery. But we do have to say we're going to do something because because right now Republicans, in response to these mass shootings, are arguing that the measures that are being pushed by Democrats are not going to be effective. Yeah. And they're specifically saying and- reasonable measures like background checks are not going to be effective against mass shootings because in these cases that wouldn't have stopped these these two perpetrators from getting guns. But they would be effective against a lot of other gun yeah. killings. So here's a little anecdote. When I was, when I turned 21, I went to go buy my first handgun at a gun show. Mm. And while I was there, I was going through my background check because uh, in Virginia, in gun shows, uh, gun store owners who set up shop there, Mm -hmm. they are required to give background checks. And while I was waiting for it, I was talking to the person at the gun stand and they talked about how earlier that day, a fugitive from justice had walked into that gun show mm-hmm. and tried to purchase a gun at her stand. Mm. And through the background check, she found out this guy was on the run from the law. Yeah. She called the police and they apprehended him. But imagine if that hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. Imagine if there was no background check. Yeah. A fugitive from justice could just buy a gun. Yeah. And imagine what, what they would have done with that. Yeah. So again, that might be an anecdote, but it can happen. And it yeah. it only takes like it, it takes that happening once in order for people to die. Yeah. And I mean, a background check is really not that big of an inconvenience. No way. Took You're, the person right. like twenty, maybe thirty minutes. Yep. You know, probably close probably closer to twenty minutes in order for them to in order for them to check me. Yeah. Like that was not that bad. Yeah. And and elected Republicans are claiming that background checks infringe on the Second Amendment, that somehow checking someone's background for criminal activity infringes on the right to have a well-regulated militia. Hmm. Which, to me, totally undermines any claim that they pretend to have to being a party of law and order. Because they're literally saying that some that we shouldn't check whether it's legal for this person to buy a gun before we sell them a gun. Yeah. Which is like so silly. And the reason I point out elected Republicans there is because in general background checks are pretty much universally yeah, favored. Yeah. Um so the Pew Research Center did a study in 2019 on um, Second Amendment and gun tr- control and, you know, its perception as a politically volatile issue. And they found that um, 93% of Democrats and 82% of Republicans are in favor of background checks for private gun sales and sales at gun shows. 82% of Republicans. They even found that 54% of Republicans and 87% of Democrats favor banning high-capacity magazines. And they found that 50% of Republicans and 88% of Democrats favored banning assault-style weapons. Now, again, gun laws vary in effectiveness, and we should try to figure out the most effective way to curtail the negative impact of guns. But it's ultimately 
not an incredibly divisive issue. Yeah. And the fact that Republicans are refusing to act in pretty much any way makes yeah. it like so clear that they're not listening to their constituents or to the research. And the thing is, it poisons the discourse. So yeah. the argument that I've heard from uh, people that I've talked to, and again, I'm probably a little bit more of a Republican on this issue than Michael is, and probably more so than most of you all listening. Hmm. But I, I think I can give you some insight into some of the the uh, the mindset of a lot of the Republican voters that vote on the basis of guns. One of the common arguments that I hear is give an inch, they'll take a mile. Sure. So the argument is, okay, a universal background check, not a huge deal. However, we give them that and they'll want more and then they'll want even more and then they'll want even more. Yeah. Cause gun control legislation is so yummy. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, if, if we do have any pro-gun advocates listening, I need I would need to caution you against that. Mm -hmm. And and again, I'm cautioning you against that from the point of view of somebody that is relatively pro-gun. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know, Michael just read off the statistic about how many people support an assault weapons ban. I don't. Yeah. I I don't support an assault weapons ban. And you know, I, you you can go back and you can listen to our podcast episode, Guns, Guns, Guns. Uh, if you want my point of view about that, like I said earlier, I don't want to focus on that right now because yeah. we just had a mass shooting. Um, but, uh, but here's the thing. There is so little conversation between people that support gun rights and people that don't support gun rights. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of that is because of how unreasonable yeah. people on the right have been about guns it's you can't do anything in order to try to solve this problem yeah this problem that is unique to the united states we have a higher shooting per capita than almost any developed country in the world and and there's no solution that we come up with that you're willing to even try mm -hmm. so the problem with that is is that when people that are pro-gun control gain power and they start creating gun control legislation, they're not going to include you in that conversation. They're not yeah. going to consider your potential concerns about gun control because thus far your concerns have been fucking stupid. Yeah. And so if there is an assault weapons ban and you don't want that to happen, the best thing you can do is start being fucking reasonable start actually trying to talk about it Tr start trying to actually discuss solutions start explaining why you don't think that could be the potential solution because as it is the 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 strategy of fear-mongering of strawmanning of oh if you if you say that we can't have these guns then we're going to turn into an authoritarian nightmare read your history read your history do you realize how many other countries have much stricter gun laws than we do mm -hmm. that did not devolve into authoritarian nightmares? The United Kingdom, Australia, like France, countries that do not have the gun laws that we have 
but have not devolved into authoritarian nightmares because of it. So that's a bad argument. It's a fear-mongering argument. And if you want to talk to people who support gun control and you use that argument, they're going to dismiss you as a nutcase yeah. because that's what you are. So the biggest opponent of the pro-gun movement are pro-gun advocates right now. Yeah. Because you do yourself a disservice. The thing is, I don't actually believe that most elected Republicans give a shit about guns. Yeah. I think that, like, I'm not a great shot, but I bet you if I challenged a majority of, like, of the, the Republicans in Congress to a, you know, to a shoot a beer can off of a log contest, oh, I that I would do it. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, but, like, a contest of, like, who could shoot the most beer cans off of a log, I, I guarantee you I would win against a majority of them. Mm -hmm. All right? And I'm not even that great of a shot. Yeah. <laughs> like... And that's because it's nothing but it's a token issue, all right? It's not an issue that they truly care about. And the best evidence that I can come up with for this is the resistance to repealing the Dickey Amendment, which is, this is the last thing that I want to talk about. So the Dickey Amendment basically says that the Center for Disease Control is not allowed to spend time studying gun violence in order to potentially find solutions. They can't study it. All right. So Michael and I were talking about how there has to be solutions to this. It might not be the solutions that, you know, it might not be all of the solutions that gun control advocates are advocating for, but there has to be some solutions to this. Mm -hmm. There is a law that currently says that the federal government cannot spend time trying to study what those solutions can be because Republicans voted for that law and they've been refusing to do anything about it. I mean, the fact that you are cutting yourself off from knowledge, from research, from studies, because you're afraid of what they might find, that is really telling about what you think about your own point of view. So now it's time for a segment we don't get to do very often, D-Bag Awards. So Nathan, who is our D-Bag this week? Well, our honorary D-Bag recipient this week is going to be Sydney Powell, Sydney Powell, come on down, <laughs> man. I was I was really hoping that she would kind of just be wiped off the face, <laughs> like you know, the public face forever after her yeah. Trump debacles. Uh, yeah. But I guess I guess not quite. Um, nope, nope. So as a reminder, what the D bag is. So the D bag award is an award that the Perspectrum gives to uniquely horrific terrible self-defeating arguments made by prominent figures mm -hmm. and of course it is named after alan dershowitz for his infamous argument against trump's impeachment where he said that trump couldn't possibly impeach because he believed cheating to win an election was in the best interests of the country <laughs> yeah <laughs> Which, one still gets me that would yeah god what a d-bag <laughs> and and the funny thing about today's uh, D-Bag Award, is that we've heard something like this before. Yeah. In fact, we've given a D-Bag Award out before for this exact same argument. For the same, same argument. argument. <laughs> so, so right now, Sidney Powell is being sued by Dominion, which is the voting machine company that she allegedly defamed when giving a press conference about Trump's lawsuits. And right now, her defense is essentially... Well, no one would listen to me. No one would believe the shit I'm saying. So 
yeah. a reasonable person wouldn't believe it, and therefore it can't be defamation. Yeah. Basically, this is what uh, her her defense team said. Quote, given the highly charged and political context of the statements, it is clear that Powell was describing the facts on which she based the lawsuit she filed in support of President Trump. Indeed, plaintiffs themselves characterized the statements as uh, at issue as wild accusations and outlandish claims. They are repeatedly labeled inherently improbable and even impossible. Such characterizations of the alleged defamatory statements further support defendants' position that Reasonable people would not accept such statements as fact, but view them only as claims that await testing by the courts through the advisory adversary process. Basically, no one would ever believe the crap I'm spewing. So. You have to be a fucking idiot to believe what I'm saying, so it can't be. So it can't be defamatory. It can't be defamation. God, that is so funny. It's so funny. That is so funny. Especially from a lawyer. Like, yeah. I'm making arguments so bad. That no one would believe them or take them seriously. But the thing is, people fucking did. I've, yeah, obviously. Like, a majority of Republicans think that the election was stolen. And I don't know if you noticed, Sidney Powell, but there was an insurrection yeah. on the Capitol. Yeah, at least a few thousand people believed you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people, be, people are uh, now, it's looking like they're going to be charged with sedition. Like yeah. a a police officer was beaten to death and several others were injured. Mm -hmm. You know, people in Congress had to flee for their lives. People were chanting, hang the vice president. Yeah. Like, so she's yeah, either right saying, no... she's either saying that, uh, that she's guilty of defamation because people believed her, or she's saying that those people ain't reasonable. <laughs> which they're not yeah. but there are a lot of unreasonable people in this country did you see how many people voted for donald trump yeah, a lot millions <laughs> so a very very deep and hearty congratulations to sydney powell for her honorary d-bag award congratulations so michael um do our segments get any lighter from here? Um, no, <laughs> not lighter. Uh, a little more detached, maybe. Okay, I can I can do detached. I don't know. <laughs> so if that's the best we got, yeah. So for our last segment this evening, we wanted to talk about hate crimes, and the reason we want to talk about this is driven primarily by the recent conversations. Uh, sparked by the racial and gender-motivated mass shooting of uh, six Asian women in massage parlors last week. Um, there's but been Michael, just because just because the shooter said kill all Asians doesn't mean that it was racially motivated. <laughs> and just because six of his eight victims were Asian doesn't mean it was racially motivated. <laughs> uh, so yeah so like that is the main reason we wanted to talk about this issue because um one we wanted to make sure to talk about kind of just what hate crimes are uh what like what the rationale is for having them and um you know or like when they may or may not be actually difficult to prove or not or charge or not um so basically hate in this context 
uh, does not mean like anger or rage or anything like that. In this context, it means um, bias against people or groups with specific characteristics. Um, Specifically, the federal hate crime laws um, uh, designate uh, like specific protected classes, just like other, um, you know, statutes which are designed for like civil, uh, civil rights and things like that. So specifically in this case, these are, these are crimes, mostly violent, um, or, or yeah, mostly violent crimes, which are perpetrated, uh, motivated by bias against, um, a victim's perceived or actual race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or disability. Um, and so most states have hate crime laws, which is really important because the federal government can't just go into a state and prosecute, you know, any crimes that are committed there. Uh, there are like jurisdictional issues. But the thing about the state level hate crime laws is that they vary a bunch. So basically, yeah. the requirements are bias against a specific protected group and that it is a crime, most often a violent crime like assault arson, murder, vandalism, or threats of similar violent crimes. Yeah. Uh, and the NAACP actually has a really good um, state-by-state uh, hate crime fact sheet mm-hmm. about which groups are protected. Uh, the specific groups that they talk about are uh, religious worship, uh, ra- race, religion, or ethnicity, mm-hmm. sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, disability, political affiliation, and age. Yeah. Uh, so we're... I'm going to be uh, posting, we're going to be posting that um, link on our Patreon. Mm -hmm. So uh, you should definitely check it out. Uh, You can access that whether you're a patron or not. Um, But it's important to note why hate crimes exist in the first place. Mm -hmm. So one of the arguments that I've heard against hate crimes in the past is basically that hate crimes make no sense because you are prioritizing the same crime committed against one person over over another person. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that this crime, because it was committed against this person, is worse than the, the exact same crime committed against another person, yeah. which creates an inherent disconnect. And then the other argument is basically hate crime is very much based on what was happening in your head at the time. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't always tell what a person's thinking. Yeah. So why is that a bad way of looking at this, Michael? So there, there, so there are a few things. Um, so first of all, the in, the specific intention of a hate crime is to make it worse to commit a crime against one group of people than other groups of people. Like that's actually the goal. And the reason for that is similar to the reasons that we um, designate protected classes in other areas of like legal and professional life as well. Because these protected groups are historically marginalized groups of people. And so we want to enhance the level of protection um, for these groups. Um, And we want to make sure to signal not only to them, but also to would-be perpetrators that these groups have uh, like warrant and, and have special protections under the law. This is a very common thing for us to do. Like you can fire someone for pretty much any reason except for their designation as a member of one of these protected classes. You know, you can deny someone 
um, you know, entry into your restaurant, except for because of their designation as one of these protected classes. We specifically carve out space in our legal system for protecting historically marginalized groups. And that, and that just makes sense. Also, if the point of incarceration is to specifically protect society from the individual, especially mm -hmm. if we are talking about a violent individual, then a person who has so much hatred towards a marginalized group that they're going to lash out and kill them or hurt them or commit some type of crime against them, mm -hmm. that person is a greater danger to society. Yeah. If, if, you know, if their motivation is just like, fuck this group of people. Yeah. Also, if you believe that, if you believe that, um, you know, uh, punishment deters crime, then you would argue that having an enhanced punishment would deter more crime. So if you have yeah. a group of people that are persecuted uh, disproportionately and you want to deter uh, crime against that group, even to just get you know crime down to a, a normal level of crime in society, you would enhance the level of deterrent. Now, there's not actually great evidence that crime that uh, punishments deter crime even in the case of, of hate crimes, and, and we'll get into that. But um, if you think that punishment deters crime, that's a good argument. Yeah. And, and one that, one that uh, is actually on the Justice, Depar Justice Department's website, justice.gov, which I found really compelling, is that hate crimes, more than other crimes, are not just about the victim. Uh, because they're specifically a violent action motivated by someone's designation, perceived or actual, in a protected class, they actually affect the whole class of people. Um, so they have a broader effect than just on the specific victim. Hate crimes, hate crime victims include um, others that are like them. So they might yeah. affect their families, communities, and even the entire nation, which is what we're seeing right now. With some of this anti-Asian, so some of the you know the experience of incredible persecution, um, yeah, because of the, I mean, the rise in anti-Asian crimes. I mean, think of it this way: if you live in a small town and you're Asian, and you and there's there's a big story in the newspaper about how another Asian in your same town just got beaten and battered by a resident because they're Asian, you're going to be terrified to go outside. Mm -hmm. You're going to feel unsafe in your own community. Yeah. Yeah. Which, That's... you know, I, and I actually want to you know, circle back a bit to the issue with Asian violence being on the rise in the United States. I believe the statistic that I read was um, it's increased by 150% mm. since COVID. A while back when the COVID when COVID-19 first started, Michael and I actually had a tips for good segment in which we basically said, hey, don't use phrases like the China virus or as Trump calls it, the Kung flu, mm -hmm. because that is only going to increase anti-Asian sentiment. Yeah. And the problem isn't with, isn't with Asians, it's with incompetent administration. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and the thing is, Trump kept using that that sentiment, kept trying to basically scapegoat Asians. Yep. And look, I'm not saying that he was directly saying, hey, you should all go attack Asians. However, 
there is an element of stochastic terrorism here. Exactly. In which enough of his followers were listening to him uh, use terms like Kung flu or China virus. They were seeing all of the problems that were happening in the country. They were feeling hurt because of the ways in which COVID-19 was affecting them. And they had a perfect scapegoat. Yeah. So of course they're going to start beating up Asian people. Yeah. If you're, if, if you, if you are trying to tell your followers that this group of people are responsible for your problems, some of them are going to start committing violence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think stochastic terrorism is a really important point connecting and, and, uh, drawing culpability back to the, the previous administration. And if you want to hear more about our discussion of stochastic terrorism and, uh, some things that probably foreshadowed a lot of this, um, anti-Asian crime, uh, we had an episode back in October called waiter. There's a fly in my VP, um, talking about stochastic terrorism in more detail. Yeah. And one insane fact that I that I read while I was researching hate crime laws. So one of the most high-profile hate crimes that has happened in recent history was the beating and killing of Matthew Shepard, who um, was uh, a young gay man um, in Wyoming. Wyoming has no hate crime laws. Yeah. And it still has no hate crime laws. Yeah. And the fact that the very state in which Matthew Shepard was murdered still has no hate crime laws is just despicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing is, there are, you know, there are varying degrees of hate crime laws uh, in Virginia, our state, um, and this is according to uh, the NAACP. Although this was last updated in 2017, so I think the Virginia General Assembly has increased hate crime laws a little bit. But as of 2017, the only two protected groups in Virginia were um, race, religion, or ethnicity, and religious worship. Yeah. And that's really important because if you're not part of a protected group designated as such by the law, these protections don't apply to you. And so if you don't have protections that run the gambit for things like you know, LGBTQ protections and things like that, then, you know, your hate crime law is insufficient and under-inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that was hard for me to read as an autistic was the fact that disability, violence Mm -hmm. against a disabled person is not considered a hate crime in Virginia either. Yeah. Uh, Or at least it wasn't in 2017. I I read that there was like a bill that had passed committee, but I didn't, but I didn't see anything about it getting actually signed. If we've uh, if we've heard anything, if we've understood anything specifically from our uh, from our conversations with uh, Lee Carter yeah. and Elizabeth Guzman, just because it gets through the House means it dies <laughs> yeah, in the exactly. Senate. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So, so you know, if I'm wrong about that, uh, and please please email. Um, you know, this is again, this is based off of the. Uh, the fact sheet from the NAACP, which yeah. uh, was last updated in 2017. So some of it yeah. could be a little bit dated. I do also want to talk about the second argument against hate crime laws that you brought up, Nathan, which is about motive. And yeah. so hate crimes specifically are crimes about motive. Um, it's just assault until the motive yeah. is, uh, you know, that it is motivated by bias against this protected group. And 
so 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 kind of two thoughts on that. First is that that is a problem of uh, prosecution, not a problem of the law itself. So like it might be challenging for a prosecutor to cons like think that they've gathered enough proof and evidence to uh, charge them with a hate crime. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a law that enables them to charge them with a hate crime when there is enough proof. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and ultimately like prosecutors stack crimes all the time. Like when you charge someone with murder, like with like first degree murder, you also charge them with second degree and manslaughter because if one doesn't stick, the next one might. And so like you could yeah. charge someone with assault and battery and also with hate crime, assault and battery. Um, and so like, there's actually no downside to having a hate crime law all like in the very worst case um it gives you a tool when applicable and and even if it's not applicable very often it signals to your historically marginalized communities that you're trying to protect them and also you know the murder example is really good for demonstrating why the idea that uh it's impossible to determine motive is kind of a bullshit argument mm -hmm. because the degrees of murder are based off of what we believe was in the person's mind. Yeah. You know, if you accidentally kill somebody that is significantly, that is considered significantly less bad and less punishable than if it's premeditated, mm -hmm. you know, or if it's in the heat of the moment, that's considered a little bit less severe than if it's premeditated, because the idea is if it's premeditated, then that means that you were fully aware of the consequences. You thought it through. Yeah. And you still did it. Yeah. So people base prosecutions of murder on intention all the time. Yeah. That's how it works. And I think that's actually an interesting argument. Another rationale for hate crimes in general being the fact that um, we designate the same outcome as ha as being a, a worse or not not as bad crime based on motivation all the time. Like the murder yeah. example is a great one. Like accidentally killing someone is, as far as our legal system goes, not as bad as killing someone on purpose. And I think it makes total sense for us to say, um, you know, uh, battering someone because you don't like them is not as bad as battering them because they are a member of a historically marginalized group. I think I'm, yeah. I'm perfectly comfortable saying that. Absolutely. Yeah, And ultimately, there's a lot of tools that prosecutors have to determine motivation by bias against a protected class, even if the, like, you know, it's going to be hard to get the person to sign up for a, uh, an enhanced punishment by saying, yep, I did it because they were, you know, whatever. Uh, but they could do things like uh, look at the defendant's membership in a group that espouses hatred for a certain other group. So you think of like alt-right groups. Um, or look at defendant's possessions and literature and symbols associated with bias, such as like Nazi memorabilia. Or you could look at the defendant's own writings or graffiti or tattoos. Uh, you social could look media. at, yeah, social media. You could look at, yeah, the, uh, you know, bias and slurs or, 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 uh, or, like the way they spend their in time on the internet, or you could look at the date of the incident and whether it coincides with different holidays or anniversaries. Um, or, or, you know, or you could look at other hate crimes committed by the defendant. Like there are so many ways 
to determine motive and try to prove it to a jury and a judge. Okay. So ultimately, ultimately, hate crimes can serve a really important purpose for protecting uh, protected classes, for for uh, signaling to them that they, uh, you know, deserve special protections because of their history of marginalization. Um, it can also be a really important tool for prosecutors, and just and the fact that it is under prosecuted and potentially underreported is not a reason not to have the law. It's a reason to take the law more seriously. So now to end out our episode, um, for the second week in a row, we'll be taking a moment of silence for the victims of uh, the mass shooting in Colorado. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>